Our study this evening begins in Romans 11, verse 24. And that's the last verse that finishes out the warning for the Gentiles. Uh, on the outline you've been given that I've put on the board. Uh, now, keep in mind that Paul is reasoning with a Jew and giving warning to the Gentiles in regard to the being cut out of the vine, as some of them were because of unbelief, and those who were drafted in from the Gentile nation into this Jewish tree, uh, they were described as a wild tree. And uh, they're drafted in because of belief, because they believe. God had this all planned. One of the reasons that he spoke to Israel in Proverbs and in dark sayings that even the prophets searched and inquired diligently, 1 Peter 1.10 says, they, they searched diligently to understand the things that they prophesied of because God done it in a way where he could establish the credibility of his plan in a time-space dimension called history. And at the same time, uh, he could cause the Jews to be in a state of confusion as the prophets were, until the fulfillment of it, which would bring the Gentiles into it. And, and then he had to destroy uh, the Jews in A.D. 70 in Jerusalem. He had to destroy them to finally stamp out uh, this uh, Jewish concept that many Jews might be saved because of it. Now the language gets a little confusing us not being Jews and not understanding all uh, that's in here that we'd like to understand. But we'll begin in verse 24, and then we'll go into Israel's possible future. What is it? It's salvation because of belief. And so all Israel will be, will be saved because of belief, not unbelief. So the majority of Israel is going to be rejected by God because they don't believe. Stephen told him that. You do always resist the Spirit of God. Roman, Acts 7 verse 51. Uh, all the way through the Old Testament. The pronouncement of judgment upon the Jews, God said through his prophets that their end was approaching. And they should have picked up on it in all of the prophecies that said it should come to pass in the last days. Now, if you was a Jew, wouldn't that say something to you? Wouldn't you want to know, when is my last days? And what's the nature of these last days? Well, the last days were finalized in A.D. 70, when God finally uh, expressed his wrath against what? Against the Jew? Against unbelief. And because they stood in unbelief, it was against the Jew. But there was still that remnant. Paul's already showed us in his arguments in chapter 9, 10, and 11, as he speaks to the Jew about God rejecting them, he said, God hadn't rejected us. We rejected God. Because there's always been this remnant. And he proved it by going to uh, uh, Elijah. Remember when Elijah ran after the contest at Mount Carmel? God came to him in a cave and said, what are you doing up here? 
I didn't commission you for this. He said, well, I'm the only one left. And God said, no, no. There's still a remnant. There's 7,000 men that hasn't yet bowed a knee to Baal. And so Paul proves through an illustration there in Elijah's day and also in the days of David that there's always been a remnant that believed in God. And his salvation is for the remnant that has faith, not for the unbeliever. And so, uh, so chapter 9, 10, and 11 are to the Jew specifically. But he brings the Gentiles in, and uh, here, as he gives a warning to the Gentiles in Romans 11, because, uh, because of the fallout of the Jew, uh, the Gentile has been grafted in. And he don't want the Gentile to get overly proud. And so, you remember last week as we looked at uh, uh, that context of Scripture, uh, chapter 11, verse 17 through 24, they'd been grafted in and there was a warning to them against boastfulness, verse 17 and 18. Don't be boastful about being grafted in for the root bears the branches. You remember we had quite a, I think we went into great lakes and discussing from John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine and ye are the branches. And so the branches have no place to boast of fruit bearing. And Jesus said in John 15, Except you abide in me, you cannot bear fruit. You can't. Without me, you can bear no fruit. So the fruitage is a result of abiding in the vine. And there's some branches, because of unbelief, they were cut out, and they're not bearing no fruit. They're laying out there, drying up and dying. And that's the picture there that he presents. How that the unbelieving Jew was in a picture cut out of this tree that can only have those who believe that can bear fruit for the for God. And so, uh, because these Gentiles have been uh, brought in uh, to this salvation that came from the Jews, that salvation was so different than Judaism, you can see why in A.D. 70 he had to stamp the, the, the whole guts out of Judaism by allowing the Romans to destroy Jerusalem. It had to be leveled. It had to be destroyed. It had to be shown emphatically that Judaism was over so that the Jew could look over his pride as being Israel and he could see that salvation is now by Christ because he's going to go back to, to uh, Isaiah and he's going to show how that God had promised to send a Messiah that would deliver Israel from sin. And so, with that confusion, we're going into the text. But he warns the uh, Gentiles against boastfulness, against pride, and against presumption. He tells them in verse 22 through 24, and that's where we're at this evening, verse 24. He says, uh, don't presume that because you're in the tree, you're going to stay in the tree. Because being in the tree only proves that you have enough faith to be in the tree. 
by your obedience. And so, being in the tree, uh, or in the branch of the vine, as uh, Jesus spoke of in John 15, beginning in verse 1, is contingent upon belief. And those who are unbelief, in unbelief, even though they are Israel, they're lost because God's only saving a remnant like he always did in Israel. <laughs> Do you know how Paul finishes this mystery here? This mystery of God in regard to the Jews? He says, look at the profoundness of God. Look at it as he says in verse 33. He finishes out this chapter with this statement. All the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has first given to him that it should be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. And so, if you don't fully understand this, don't sweat it too much because you're looking into the depths of the riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God. You're looking into things that He planned before He made the world. This thing was all mapped out before He made the world. This isn't a, a jump off out of uh, Afghanistan like our president done and leave the, left us stranded. This was a very well planned, the wisdom of God. Okay, now, let's begin at verse 24 and finish out this one little phase here as Paul speaks to the Gentiles in warning them not to be overly proud and boastful and presumptuous. He says... <coughs> I have two personalities and because of that I have two voices and they kind of blend together and make this awful noise so bear with me. Didn't sound like two people singing up here. Both voices were involved. Harmonizing. Are we ready for verse 24? Amen. Okay, you're finished with me, ain't you? Amen. You gotta have a little, <laughs> you gotta have a little more patience than that. I'm an old person. Amen. Okay, verse 24. For if thou wast cut out of that which is by nature a wild olive tree, he's talking to the Gentiles. Remember Romans 1, verse 18 through 32. What kind of a tree grew there? You remember? You remember? Verse 18 of Romans 1 says what? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. And then he begins to describe how unrighteous man is. He's changed the truth of God into a lie. He worships and serves the creature more than the creator. 
He's one who has changed the natural use of the woman into that which is against nature. He's become homosexual and lesbianism. He, he renounces man's sins and shows the futility and the end result of man alone from God. And so here he's telling the Jew, if thou was cut out of the, that which was by nature a wild olive tree, just look back and remember Romans 1, verse 18 to 32. They were a wild olive tree. A wild tree has no trimming, has no pruning. And they were grafted in because of belief. They believed in God. They come to believe in Him. Uh, but he describes them like Romans 1 does. All right, so you want to know how wild they were? Just read Romans 1, 18 through 32. All right, so that's what kind of a tree grew there. The wildest of olive trees. Well, if God took people out of that tree, a wild tree, and grafted them into a good tree, and he did that, how much more, the text says, shall these which are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So you see what he's telling the Gentile? He's saying, don't be boastful, because God is able to... Not, he, not, he not only grafted you in, but he's able to take those who are laying out there dying if because of a, because of belief he can graft them into the tree too all right so if they continue not in unbelief according to verse 23 they can be grafted in but they got to believe now if he tells them now if you continue not in unbelief what do you continue in you continue in belief don't you well, that's just elementary. So if they continue not in unbelief and turn back to belief, what will God do? He will graft them back into the tree. And that's the hope that Israel has. They're all puffed up and feel rejected by God like there is no hope. And Paul's saying, yeah, there's hope. But you've got to believe. You ain't coming in. You ain't being saved just because you was chosen way back in the Old Testament as God's nation. He used you. He had a purpose for you as being a shadow of better things to come. And you fulfill that. Your mission is over. And there's still Jews that rejected Christ but are hanging on to Judaism. All right. So he's telling the Gentile, do not be boastful, do not be proud, and do not be presumptuous to believe that you are the only one the ones now that are going to be in that tree. Because he can grab in the Jews because of belief later when they believe. You may not continue in it and, and the Jew may get back into it depending on what you now do in response to what I now say. If you become boastful, proud, and presumptuous, you're going to be out there withering and dying like you deserve to be. And if the Jew turns back to me in faith and obedience, he tells him, then I'm going to put him right back in there in this tree. And don't you think there's not room? You don't have to leave for there to be room for the Jew. That's what he's telling him. 
All right, now we shift gears and go into another phase of Paul's argument here. Uh, he finishes out chapter 11 uh, with Israel's possible future. So what he's going to say in verse 25 through 32 has to do with Israel's possible future. What is their possibility? He's going to talk now about Israel's possible future. Now he's brought up the idea of possibility in the paraphrase proceeding here where he goes, he gave instructions concerning Israel. And he's even brought back up in verse 23 and 24 as he gave warning to the Gentiles. And now he's going to discuss the possibility for the Jewish people in the future. He's talking about the bulk because Israel is going to be saved anyway. He's going to get that small circle saved anyway because they're the forsaken, or excuse me, they're the foreknown. We've seen that back in earlier studies uh, in 9, 10, and 11, that they were foreknown of God from the very beginning. All right? They are Israel's, uh, I mean, excuse me, they are Isaac's seed. And so they're going to be saved. But there's possibility for the entire mass of the Jews. There's possibility, and that's based on faith, that the majority that we saw standing at the monument to God's justice. I don't remember which king it was that asked his jester or counselor one time, maybe it was his chaplain, and he asked him to give him as quick as he could a proof of the goodness and mercy of God. And he replied, the Jews, my Lord. That was his answer. And that's literally true. As one studies the Old Testament, you cannot explain the history of Israel and leave out God. You can't do it. You just can't do it. How else could, do you explain an ungodly people being allowed by something to continue throughout all of the destructions of great empires? That remnant remains, doesn't it? So God had a lot of patience with Israel, didn't he? Uh, all right. Now, there's future possibilities here that's uh, discussed. First, first one is verse 25 and 26. He states a great revelation in 25 and 26, and it's outlined under five points. He starts out a, a statement of supreme importance as he says, I do not wish you to be ignorant. And therefore I know that what it's, he's about to say is of supreme importance to these Jews. It is of special character, number two. I, he says, I do not wish you to be ignorant concerning this mystery. All right, he's going to begin to deal with the mystery in regard to the Jew, how that God spoke to him in prophecy uh, in a way that it even confused the prophets that spoke. They could see a beauty in it, but they couldn't see it all coming together like a puzzle until Jesus came and put the pieces together. Now, you and I know that that's a theological word, don't we? That word mystery. Uh, 
It means not a mystery that's not unsolvable. It means a mystery that's not been revealed until the proper time. And so in the Old Testament, God's plans were a mystery. And in the New Testament, they were revealed. Then in the third place, it's of practical intention. He says, I do not wish you to be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own conceit. And then number four, there's an immediate aim stated. He said, I want you to know that a hardening in part has befallen Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so the immediate aim is the salvation of the Gentiles. And he says, verse 26, And so all Israel shall be saved. Uh, that's the ultimate obje object. And so God's immediate aim is saving the fullness of the Gentiles, and His ultimate aim is saving all Israel. And of course, all Israel is those that believe. It's not all Israel in terms of just the nation Israel. <coughs> because there's that large circle, small circle concept. As Jesus told the Jews in Luke 13, 3, Except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And so there was some conditions to uh, being just of Israel or being of the remnant in Israel. And the remnant was the ones that was always faithful to God. God is a God of remnants. He's in the remnant business. That's why the church is insignificant in the world we live in in terms of numbers only. It's not insignificant in terms of its power because it has the power of the gospel, God's power, His dynamite to save. And that's what we preach. But He's insignificant in numbers, isn't He? And that's the way men look at things, isn't it? Is in numbers? Sure they do. If you're fighting a foe out here, you count His numbers, don't you? You say, oh man, what are we going to do? There's a thousand more of them enemy troops than we've got on the line. And we get scared. So we count things in numbers. and uh, But in quality, uh, the gospel is the power of God and the salvation of the one. 16. And so the, uh, uh, the aim of God is saving the fullness of the Gentiles and his ultimate aim is saving all Israel. God wants them both saved. But in his wise plan, and that's why I read to you verse 33, all oh, the depths of the riches, both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways and his ways past finding out. For who's known the mind of the Lord that he might be his counselor? Or who's first given to him that he might recompense unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so, here's a great revelation given concerning the reason for God's activity concerning the rejection of Israel. For that's the context of these three chapters. Uh, God's rejection of the majority of Israel. We might say of the nation of Israel. 
if we could view Israel as a nation in the first century, uh, that's a matter to be debated, isn't it? As to whether they were a nation in the first century or simply a state of being, a state of being. Now I know that there was in the sight of God a nation, uh, always a nation, but I'm talking about in the first century whether they could be considered in the world of the nations, the people of Israel are in view. All right, let's look at these verses with these five points that I just mentioned a minute ago. He wants him to know that what he's about to say is of special importance. And so he says in verse 25, For I would not, brethren, have you ignorant. And it's also a special character because he said of this mystery. So he don't want them to be ignorant about this mystery. And we don't want to be ignorant of it either, do we? So we're going to study it here. What is a mystery? It's something once hidden and now known. Now we think of mysteries as being beyond the ability to understand. Something that mystifies us. We don't understand it. But the way the New Testament, the way the Bible uses the word mystery is that it's merely uh, knowledge withheld until a particular time. And so it's something that once hid, was once hidden, and now it's made known. That's the New Testament use of it, of this word. The New Testament use of the word mystery is that which has not been understood, nor understandable, is now both understandable and understood. And so God spoke to them, we've already seen that in Scripture. He spoke to them in parables. He spoke to them in ways that they could see the beauty of, to some extent, of what was coming. But they couldn't fully understand it. That's why Jesus began his ministry in Matthew 5, verse 6, uh, 17 and 18, on the, in the Sermon on the Mount. He had to explain to those Jews his intent, his purpose. He said, now you're going to see things that you're not going to understand. Because they're, they're <coughs> until now they're being revealed. But what you're going to see uh, is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. Could they see it? Did they see it on the day of Pentecost? Just let me ask you that question. Because what was Peter's argument in regard to Jesus? It was impossible for him to be worthy of death because he had no sin. But God destined him to a cross. And you Jews have fulfilled what God wanted the crucifixion of his son. You done it out of your hatred and you'd be condemned for it. But God knew all of this. And so the fact that uh, he was crucified unjustly, God raised him from the dead. And what did he use for proof? Where did David go to prove the resurrection of Jesus? Old Testament prophecy. It convinced 3,000 Jews that they had truly killed their, their uh, Messiah that they was waiting so anxiously for 
because they misunderstood who he was and his mission. They saw him as an imposter. He killed him. Yet they couldn't deny his power because as we saw this morning, when he came back to Jerusalem to die, what did they do? Laid out palm leaves. And they welcomed him in by the thousands as they cried out, uh, Hosanna, or save now. Save now. They got to chanting that. They saw his power. They couldn't deny it. And that's what Nicodemus said. Master, we know that you're a man come from God. That's John 3, verse 5. No, it didn't. Yeah, it is. He said, we know, uh, verse 1. He said, we know you're a man come from God because no man can do what you do except God be with him. And again, Peter put it in those Jews' face in Acts 2. He said, Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God among you. Was he approved among the Jews? Oh, he was proven to be the Son of God. Both with miracles and signs and divers' gifts as God worked through him and proved him as ye yourselves also know. And there wasn't a Jew stood up out of all them hundreds of thousands of Jews there and said, we don't know that, Paul, or Peter. We don't know that. They knew it. They knew it. The evidence was there. And so Jesus told them, don't think I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one shot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And you remember what the law is. Don't just limit it to the Ten Commandments because the Old Testament doesn't do that. You look up the law in the concordance and you'll find out that the law referred to all the commandments God gave them, Mount Sinai. There was 86 commandments, I think there was, plus the 10. So it was in, that term referred to all that God gave them. The law of sacrifice and everything as well as the moral code. Alright. So here's a message of special importance. I would not have you to be ignorant. It has special character because it's of this mystery. Uh, so a mystery uh, is that which has not been understood nor understandable. God made it that way purposely. Uh, but is now both understandable and understood in the first century. <laughs> the little man with glasses. <laughs> Sitting over here like a big shot with dark glasses on. And uh, so what is that mystery? that Paul is mentioning here. He don't want them to be ignorant about. Well, that's the immediate aim. He said, I would not have you ignorant because of the mystery, lest ye be wise in your own conceits. He's speaking to the Gentiles. And he told you he was speaking to the Gentiles in verse 13. And so he says, I don't want you Gentiles wise in your own conceits. So I'm going to tell you about the mystery of God. That's his uh, practical intent. He says, I don't want you to be wise in your own conceits and lost because uh, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. 
And I don't want you to be lost. I don't want you to become wise in your own conceits, thinking that you are a special people because you've been grafted into the tree. Let me tell you about the mystery of God. Uh, here is what at one time was not understandable, but now is. What was not understood, but now should be, that a hardness in part has happened, had befallen Israel. And so that's the thing that was a mystery, the hardening part of, uh, uh, that has befallen Israel. Uh, uh, it, that's the hardening total. Uh, it's, it's partial. It's not total because there's a remnant, see? So he says, I want you to know, number one, that the hardening is not total, that the hardening is only partial, but that uh, that partial hardening was for the intent of bringing in the fullness of the Gentiles. God had this all planned out before he ever made man. Now the word fullness of the Gentiles means one of three things. Number one, it could mean either it means the full number of the Gentiles that will be converted, which I don't believe it means, since a bunch of Gentiles have been saved even after uh, he got through saying all of Israel. Or it means, number two, the fullness in the, of the Gentiles in the sense that they become God's fullness as the church is, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. This stated in Ephesians 1 verse 23. Now that has a distinct possibility, I believe, and that's probably what it is. And so he's doing this so that the Gentiles can become God's church or in God's church uh, in God's fullness, in other words. So his intent was that they become full, the fullness, that the Gentiles be uh, full. The Gentiles become God's fullness is his intent. And that's a distinct possibility. And I'm tempted to say that that's it. But there's a third possibility also. In Luke 21 and verse 24, he talks about the Jews being trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So it could be referring to the fact that the hardening in part has, uh, has fallen upon Israel until God turns them over to the full judgment of the Gentiles. Full judgment of the Gentiles, A.D. 70. Can salvation come out of judgment? It certainly can, and it does. And therefore, that would make judgment his last act of grace to the Jews when he destroyed them in A.D. 70. That was his last act of grace to the Jew. There's one you've got to think about just a little bit. And I'm very tempted to make it that. Now, Personally, I'm torn between the last two, uh, between him saying he hardened Israel in part, that the Gentiles should become the fullness of God, or that he hardened the Jews in part until he brought the Gentiles and all their fullness down upon them. It's one of them too. 
Now, which uh, ever it is, what is his ultimate object? Verse 26, and so all Israel shall be saved. So what's God's ultimate object in all of this? That all Israel might be saved. Now, again, he's not talking about all Israel is in the context of, of the whole nation. He's talking about that remnant that's in Israel that believes. Because salvation is by belief, not just because you belong to Israel. They were thinking that they were saved because they all belonged to Israel. No. That's why they looked down on a Gentile, because he was not a Jew. You know, they had laws under the law uh, that caused this confusion a little bit because God commanded them not to have anything to do with the Gentile. He was unclean. That's why Peter refused to eat the unclean meats that God let lowered down in the book of Acts, uh, the 10th chapter, when God was preparing him to go to the Gentile house because they saw a Gentile as unclean. Now, the fact that uh, that's his ultimate object and the fact that I know that God in the book of Matthew 24 said that the days would be shortened because of the elect's sake. He said that. That the days of destruction at AD 70 would be shortened because of the elect's sake. There's that remnant. I, because of that, I strongly tempted to believe that he's stating in the fullness of the Gentiles, he's actually saying the fullness of their judgment upon Israel of A.D. 70. Because definitely in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, uh, that's made the fact, the last act of God's grace toward the Jews to save them. That's his last act. Didn't he warn them? Didn't he tell them? That if you believe in me, you believe what I'm telling you, and you see Jerusalem compassed about with armies, you will flee. Well, they didn't. There was a few that fled. There was a remnant. But most of them died because of their lack of belief in God. They didn't believe what Jesus said. So when Jerusalem was compassed about with the Roman army and laid siege against the city, they got to turn, they turned to eat their own children in hunger and they perished inside that city and the Romans hated them so bad that just like Jesus said there, when they finished there wasn't one stone left upon another alright now that was God's intent according to those passages now I'm going to let you make your choice that's up to you which one you think it is it's one of those two I cannot believe it means the full number of the Gentiles to be saved, for that's not over yet, is it? I mean, that's still going on. You and I are Gentiles. <laughs> Long time after this was written. And he saved all of, uh, all of Israel. I think here's what he's saying. Chapter 9, verse 1 through 5. Here's what God uh, did to save the Jews. Uh... So in chapter 9, 1 through 5, he gave them great promises and blessings. Number 2, in chapter 9, verse 6 through 29, he gave them great Old Testament providence. Number 3, in chapter 9, verse 30 through 10, verse 4, 
he gave them Jesus living amongst them. And number four, in chapter 10, verse 5 through 21, he gave them the word preached in all its power among them. And number five, in chapter 11, verse 1 through 10, he uh, created in their midst a godly remnant to show them what was possible for them. And number six, in chapter 11, verse 11 through 24, he converted the Gentiles in great number to provoke them to jealousy. And number seven, in chapter 11, verse 25, he sent the Gentiles among them in all their fullness to bring about an end of their nation. So why was AD 70? To bring about an end, a total, complete, thorough end of the Jewish nation. And that's why there wasn't one stone left upon another. And so, in that manner, by those seven things that I just mentioned, all Israel shall be saved. There's not going to be any Jewish system anymore. That's the idea. It's going to be stamped out by the Romans. What's going to be left? God's going to have their attention now as He speaks to them through the Gospel. His power to save. So all that God can do he has done. He has not left one stone unturned. That's Paul's message to these Jews in chapter 9, 10, and 11. He has blessed them, number one. Number two, he has providentially led them and protected them. And number three, he has sent his son to be the example of what they should be in regard to the law. And number four, he has preached the word among them. For their acceptance. And number five, he has placed a remnant among them for their example. And number six, he has converted the Gentile to provoke them to jealousy. And number seven, he's destroyed their nation uh, <clears throat> to show that he no longer lives in their temple. Their temple don't exist anymore. And so, as he says in the text, all Israel shall be saved. That's why I'm tempted to believe that last point is judgment. But I'll leave that to you to decide. But now in verse 26 to 32, he presents what I would call a great vindication. Now here, he quotes some scripture in vindicating everything he has said not simply in this paragraph, but everything he has said in chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. He's going to vindicate in verse 26 through 32. And so now uh, we've already seen, we already see or will see again, <clears throat> that this rejection of Israel and God's dealings with them is in harmony with divine prophecy. It just didn't come off happenstance. It was according to God's prophecy. <clears throat> Alright, so it's according to divine prophecy. It's in harmony with what God has said in the Old Testament. 
He said, and so all Israel shall be saved. That's God's intent. Even as it is written, he says. Now here's vindication of God's activity in saving Israel. He's coming now to the conclusion of what he started and stated in chapter 9, verse 6. For he says, For they are not all Israel that are of Israel. And so here you have this large circle, uh, everybody that is Israel, and all those that are uh, Jacobites, all those that are from Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob. That's those who are of Israel. But he says, For they are not all Israel. Now that's his small circle. They are of Israel. And so there's a bunch of people of Israel that are not of Israel. There's a bunch of Jews that are not Jews, is what he's saying. Now he introduced that way back there in chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, because he said this, that circumcision is not really circumcision, which is of the flesh. But he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but also there is one inwardly. And so you see the picture. Israel, the majority, you couldn't come into Israel without being circumcised. But to come into Christ, you also have to endure a second circumcision of the heart. Theirs was of the flesh. It was an earthly covenant. And this one in Christ is spiritual. And so to get into this small circle, you've got to have an outward and an inward uh, circumcision. To get into this small circle. Now to get into the small circle Paul is discussing here, called the church, do you even need an outward circumcision? No, you don't. No, you don't. Merely this inward circumcision of the heart. But if you're going to get into Israel uh, that is in the church, you're going to have to have both of, both of them. Because to even get into the circle at all, you've got to be circumcised of the flesh to become a Jew in the first place in this circumstance. To get into the small circle within the large circle, you've got to be circumcised at the heart. And that was their problem, unbelief. And so they weren't circumcised. Their filth of the heart was not cut out because that's what circumcision was, the filth of the flesh being cut away. Now when he says there in the text, for all Israel shall be saved, did he say for all of Israel shall be saved? All they that are of Israel shall be saved? Well, that's what the millennialists teach in this text. That's what they try to teach. But now the uh, position is not all they that are of Israel shall be saved. That's not what he said in verse 26. In this section, who is Israel? In chapter 9, 10, and 11, who is Israel? The faithful Jew. The faithful Jew as Christian. He's the fellow who is Israel in chapter 9, 10, and 11. What's he also called? He's called the elect. He's called the remnant. He's called the foreknown of God. And he's called Isaac. He's called all those things, isn't he? That we've already studied. 
There are those who have carried the truth, believed the truth, and called upon God. Chapter 10. You see, there's bunches of things in this section that tell us who true Israel is. And now he quotes from Isaiah, the 59th chapter. And I think it'd be good to look at Isaiah 59 to see what the context is. He quotes verse 20 and 21 of Isaiah 59. But if you look at Isaiah 59, it is a statement of the judgment that comes upon the nation of Israel because of its sin. Remember verse 1 and 2. Jehovah's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, and neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you so that he will not hear. In verse 9 to 15, he talks about a total lack of justice found in Israel. And beginning in the latter portion of verse 15, he begins to speak of the fact that God's judgment is now going to come according to the deeds of the people, and those are that are wicked will be receive the sword of God, the wrath of God, uh, down here in verse 18, and the recompense of God. But then verse 19 speaks about what those that fear Jehovah's name in that day of judgment will receive. Because here's what it says in verse 19. So shall they that fear the name of Jehovah from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come as a rushing stream with which the breath of Jehovah driveth. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith Jehovah. And as for me, this is my covenant that I will make with them, and my spirit, and so forth, I will put upon them. Well, he doesn't quote that part of the passage. Paul doesn't. He says, There will come out of Zion the Deliverer, and he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Now what's the context then of the quote? Is it a context of simply salvation? Or is it a context of salvation in the midst of judgment? So it's the second, salvation in the midst of judgment. Whose judgment, uh, who's judged in Isaiah 59? All the wicked. Uh, the great mass of Israel. Who's saved in Isaiah 59? Those that fear his name. That's what, that's what we just read. The small number of Israel. Remember Isaiah 1 verse 9? It said, except the Lord had left us a remnant, we would have been like unto Sodom. We would have been like unto Gomorrah, totally annihilated. And so just how much of Israel is going to be saved in the book of Isaiah? Just a remnant. So it was prophesied thusly. And except it be for the remnant, they would have been totally destroyed. Well, why wasn't the remnant destroyed? Because God's faithful. And that remnant was what? 
those that feared God's name according to the text that we read there in Isaiah 59. So God's not going to destroy people who fear his name. He's faithful. Anybody that gets destroyed, what do what do you know? It was righteous that they be destroyed. That's one thing you can bank on. If they were destroyed, it was because God is righteous. Now, I may not understand how it was righteous, but I can understand that it is righteous because Jehovah did it. Somebody says, well, that's blind faith. No, that's uh, irreputable evidence. Because I've got plenty of evidence that God's been righteous. I've got uh, irreputable, indisputable evidence that God is righteous. So at the moment, I don't understand him. I just know he's righteous and wait for an understanding. That's very logical. So the judgment is righteous and people are being saved in the midst of the judgment. If the judgment wasn't righteous, would there be anybody being saved? Well, no. Just kill all of them. That's the way it would be, right? But God saved a remnant. And then he quotes Isaiah 27, verse 9. And he says, This is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Now let's look at Isaiah 27 and see that uh, his context is there. 27 is a singular discussion that started in verse 24. 24 to 27 is one unit. Jehovah's judgment upon the nations and his deliverance of Zion. And so here's the world that surrounds Israel. And in Isaiah 24 to 27, he's judging the nations that surround Israel. In In 24 and 25 is the judgment of the nations. 26 is a song of praise of that judgment. And 27 is a statement of the deliverance of the salvation of Israel. Now Paul quotes 27 verse 9. And now look at verse 7 to see that it's the judgment context. It says, Hath he smitten them that he he smote those that smote them? Or are they slain according to the slaughter of them that were slain by them? In measure, when they... Uh, sendest them away, thou dost con- uh, contend with them. So he wants contending with them according to their deserts. He hath removed them with his rough blast in the day of the east wind. And therefore by this, by the judgment. And so uh, the antecedent of the statement by this is blowing them away with the blast of the east wind. The judgment that came down upon Israel is with that intent, according to verse 9. By this, it says, shall the iniquity of Jacob be forgiven. And so, by what was he forgiven? Well, he was forgiven by judgment. Therefore, we were forgiven by judgment, weren't we? God's judgment at Calvary. Therefore, and of course, 
we haven't finished yet, but you can see again why I brought in uh, verse 33 and 34 uh, and 35 of this chapter. All the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. That's what we're dealing with here in regard to Israel. So, by what was uh, Israel forgiven? By judgment. Therefore, Paul here in chapter 11 is speaking about salvation in the midst of judgment. Since he quotes Isaiah's statement of salvation in the midst of judgment, and even Isaiah's statement of salvation even by judgment. In judgment and by judgment. That's an unusual view, isn't it? That judgment is actually salvation. But is that not his statement in verse 27? He said, look, uh, he's going to blow them away by the rough blast of the east wind. And by this, by the judgment, shall they be saved. Boy, that gives judgment a new view, doesn't it? Is God righteous when he brings judgment? What's his intent when he brings judgment? His intent is always salvation. Again, he brought judgment to Calvary, didn't he? To our salvation. You see how salvation can be found in judgment? Well, that's the argument Paul's making with these Jews. And so, uh, sometimes the salvation of a child can only be solved by hard discipline. I think we understand that. And there's a parallel. Sometimes that's the last act wherein good can be sought. You remember when in, I, uh, in Hosea 2, verse 14 and 15, you remember God called Israel a wife? He said, I will allure her into the valley of trouble. And there, in that valley of trouble, she'll give answer to me, and it will be her only door of hope. Did God save Israel at that time by judgment? He brought them back 70 years later, and he cured them of idolatry. They never become idolatrous again. And they went in as they wept when the enemy taunted them to sing songs of Zion and of their God because they were now in the hands of the Assyrians, of the Babylonians. But when they left 70 years later, how did they come home? Isaiah 40 will tell you all about it. The last few verses. They that wait on Jehovah, and they had waited 70 years. They that wait on Jehovah shall mount up on wings of eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and walk and not faint. They went, came back with a spirit of obedience. And so that obedience came out of judgment. Don't you see that? And that's the same way with a child. Uh... And so that's the last act wherein God can be sought. And therefore, what's the last act of grace to Israel? Judgment. Uh, this is not only in harmony with divine prophecy, 
but with divine plan. God planned it this way. Because verse 28 says this, As touching the gospel, they, that is the whole nation, were enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. Now remember he's talking to Gentiles. He's told you uh, that starting in verse 13. What's the nation in regard to the Gentiles? Enemies. But what are the elect according to the Gentiles? They're beloved for the Father's sake. Then in verse 29, he says this is in harmony with the divine principle. It's not only in harmony with divine prophecy and divine plan, but it's also in harmony with divine principle. Because he says, for the gifts and the calling of God are not repented of. When God gives a gift, He doesn't repent of giving it because He gave it for the purpose, for the proper reason. And when God makes a calling, He doesn't repent of making the calling, for He made it for a proper uh, reason. And so the rejection of Israel and the acceptance of the remnant is according to divine principle. And that is that God does not deny his gift or his calling. Who did he intend to give the gift to all along? The remnant. That was seen earlier. Who did he intend to call all along? The remnant. And so the rejection of the mass of Israel and the acceptance of the remnant is in harmony with the divine principle. And that's Paul's argument there to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Number four, he says, uh, verse 30 and 31, uh, that's in harmony with divine providence. He says, for as ye in time past were disobedient to God, speaking to the Gentiles, for ye in times past were disobedient to God, but now have obtained mercy by their disobedience. Even so have these also now been disobedient, that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now obtain mercy. And so he said, look, the providence of God at this moment is giving you mercy and then judgment. But why is he doing that? That by the fact that God has shown mercy to you, he might also show mercy unto them. And so he's grafted the Jew, the Gentile in, and uh, and he's also can graft in the Jew later by judgment. The point is, if God has shown mercy to the Gentile when they came into agreement with the providence of God, will he not do also to the Jew? And then his last point, uh, and that is number five, in harmony with his divine purpose. And I've got a little bit more to go there. Time's up. I think it is. I was hoping to get through that, but we're not going to make it. But then when Paul finishes all of his arguments to the Jew, who has a better perspective of this and understanding than you and I do, he's going to remind them of the depths of the riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways and his judgment past finding out. And so, 
God in His plans and purposes and His providence, they go very deep. And you and I have to do some hard studying to get the depths of all that's said here. I'm sure we haven't got it here. We've talked about it a little bit, but I'm sure we haven't got it to our satisfaction. But we don't give up on it, do we? We'll look at it again and again. We'll go home and read this again and again, and we'll try to absorb what we can of what Paul's argument is to the Jews. But chapter 9, 10, and 11, they're feeling like they're rejected and they're ruler of the nation because they finished their course. They brought us to Christ. They were that schoolmaster that brought us to Christ. And like Paul said in Galatians 3, after he brought us to Christ, we have no more need of a schoolmaster. It was finished. Israel had fulfilled its purpose. And so God, because of their unbelief, he brought the Romans down on them in A.D. 70 and allowed the Romans to totally thoroughly finalize the temple, the city, and everything wherein one stone was not left upon another. He was putting an end to the Jewish system. And what are they going to seek after? They're going to come back pouting and wondering where, where, what happened to God? Where's God? And they're going to find Him in Christ Jesus. Because how does John talk about Jesus? John 1.18 no man seen God at any time. The only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth, He has declared Him. And they're going to come to see the declaration of God in Jesus Christ. And they're going to see the transition from Judaism to Christianity. They're going to see the end of Judaism and the beginning of Christianity. And so the cross of Christ stands as a monument, a mark, to the finalization of Judaism and the commencement of Christianity. <laughs> now, <laughs> bless your hearts, I can see you don't understand all of this, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter that much. This is written to the Jew. But we want to delve into it and see it, don't we? We want to understand even though we're not Jews. We want to make sure we're part of that remnant. Huh? We want to make sure we're part of that remnant. Yes. And so we too stand in marble. Oh, the depths of the riches, both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable His ways. His judgment is <coughs> finding out. Or who is known the mind of the Lord? How about Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Cambridge? Who is known the mind of the Lord that He might be His counselor? Or who is first given to him that it might be recompensed to him again? For of him and to him and through him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Well, for what it's worth, that's the class for this evening. And so hang your jaw down like this, and we'll all leave. <laughs> I realize it wasn't all that clear. That's about the best I can do. Thank you. Thank you. Let's stand and sing our invitation song. <laughs> oh, do not let the word depart 